All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm gonna leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I had figured it, wow. out. it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. We have live shows coming up January 10th in New York City, January 20th in Maine, and January 28th in London. StoryCollider.org for more details. This week's story is from Justin Cameron. The story was recorded in November 2014 at Under St. Mark's Theatre in New York City as part of the Gotham Storytelling Festival. And quick warning, it's pretty gruesome. Uh, well, so my story starts uh, a couple years ago when I lived in Washington, D.C., and I was feeling pretty dissatisfied with my life. I was about to turn 30 the next year, and all I had in my life was basically my day job. I was a business analyst, and I was starting to think that if I didn't do something more exciting, then I was just doomed to become a terminally boring adult. And around the same time, a new bar opened up in my neighborhood in Washington. And I don't know if you spend a lot of time in Washington, D.C., but a lot of the bars are basically like sports hangouts or like political intern bars where people sit around to discuss elections. But this bar I went to on its opening night and it was, it was totally different because this bar was themed around the circus and the sideshow and never seen anything like it. You walked inside and on and both sides of this tiny little bar as you walked in were these glass cases and they were filled with things like, like five-legged dogs and, and two-headed goats and and mermaids, and the mermaids were fake, but it didn't matter because it was totally different from anything you'd seen before. But the best part about it was the performers. And so there's this tiny, tiny little stage. It's about half the size of this stage here. And that first night I was there, I saw a woman get up on the stage, and she was dressed in this corset, and she swallowed a sword. And I'd never seen this before. I was fascinated. And so after the show, I went over to her, and I said, look, it's amazing. I can't believe you did that. What if I wanted to become a sword swallower? How do I learn? And she basically rebuffed me and she said, look, you don't want to become a sword swallower. And at this point, she pointed to her throat and there was this long scar there. And she said, the thing about being a sword swallower is sooner or later, everybody gets hurt. It didn't matter because I was looking at her and I was thinking of this act and I was saying to myself, this is great. I'll be the only business analyst in Washington, D.C. <laughs> who moonlights as a sword swallower and nobody else has ever done this before. And this is how I'll be interesting when I'm 30. It's perfect. <laughs> I can see no downside at all. So I asked her again, and we became friends, and I would badger her a little bit. And finally, she relented, and she said, look, if you want to become a sword swallower, the easiest way to do it is to go to Coney Island. And I had never been to Coney Island before, but as it turns out, they have a, a circus school here where you can go, and they'll teach you all the different acts. So I started driving up on weekends from Washington to New York, and studying with carnies, basically. And so I learned how to do things like eat fire or 
walk on broken glass or lie on a bed of nails. And, and all that was fun and interesting, but they saved the part that I was really interested in until last, which was swallowing swords. And I remember asking, like, towards the end of the four or five weeks I was up there, I was like, you know, when do I get to swallow a sword? And they finally said, well, you know, most people don't do this because, frankly, it's really dangerous, and sooner or later, everybody gets hurt. But it didn't matter. And so, finally, they, they gave me a quick lesson, and I went home to practice. And... <laughs> <laughs> And so I'll save you all the, the time and the effort and the cost and trouble of going to circus school yourself, and I'll, I'll tell you right now the secret to becoming a successful sword swallower. The secret is this, that there's no trick to it whatsoever. All you have to be able to do is stand up straight, stick a rigid metal object all the way down your throat, into your stomach, and not throw up. And, and if you can manage that, then the rest is gravy. So... Well, I didn't start with a sword, I, sh I should say that. So I, I got back and I was like, okay, I had a plan for how I was gonna put together my act and I was gonna transform myself into this crazy performer. So what I did is instead, is I started with a coat hanger. <laughs> now, now there's, there's lots of good reasons to recommend a coat hanger because first off, everybody has them. So what I would do is I would take a metal coat hanger, just like one you've got in your closet, and then get a piece of steel wool. And what you want to do is you want to basically buff this, this middle coat hanger until you get all the burrs and the nicks and the edges off, and it's nice and perfectly smooth. And then once you've done that, you just want to sterilize it. You can do this with rubbing alcohol. And then basically pull it out until you've got this long, narrow hoop. And what you're left with is, is basically an imitation sword, except it's flexible and it's forgiving. And so once you've got that, you're ready to begin. So go into your bathroom like I would, and I would... And here's my routine. This is something I did every day. I would do it seven times a day, seven days a week, for months until I finally got it down. Plant my feet in front of my sink. Take my coat hanger. Stand up straight. Lift my head, thinking, got to make this as straight as possible. Don't want any, I don't want to catch on anything. <laughs> you take your coat hanger, and then put it down your throat. The sink is for when you throw up which we'll do over and over and over and over again until finally one day you have a moment where instead of this coat hanger catching on the back of your throat, suddenly it goes all the way through and you discover a couple things. You realize that you have more nerve endings inside of here than you ever thought possible because suddenly you're acutely aware of something that's not quite pain, but it's not quite comfortable either. It's this object going straight down. Well, once I did that, I, I realized I was doing this, I was actually swallowing a, a sword, and I wasn't, I wasn't dying. I was like, well, this is great. Now I can make an act out of it. Jump forward a year. At this point, I've moved on to bigger and better swords, real swords. And I'm back at this bar that I'd been at a little over a year prior, and it's my first big gig. I'm there. My girlfriend is with me. She was a burlesque performer, so she had some stage experience. So she was helping me. Um, basically make my big debut. Now, my act was in three phases. I didn't use a coat hanger for this. But the first sword I would start with wasn't even really a proper sword. It was a, it was a dagger. But it was the first sword I ever swallowed, so it was sentimental to me. And <laughs> the blade on this one was very modest by sword swallower standards. It was only a foot long. So figure about this, and it would go from here down to the middle of, to the middle of my sternum. 
And I would swallow that. And that was good because you could pass it around to the audience. They, they, people could hold it. They could touch it. And they could satisfy themselves that this was a rigid object. It wasn't a collapsible like fake of any way. Once that was done, I, I moved on to something called a Japanese sigh. And if you're a child of the 80s and if you ever watched the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you, you probably remember Raphael, who had one of these. And, and I like that because it was different. No other sword swallower used one. And it was, it was really difficult to swallow. So it was a bit of a challenge. But my finale was the best part. For my finale, I wouldn't just swallow one sword. I swallowed two swords. Each one was 24 inches long. And the remarkable thing is when you are practicing to become a sword swallower, you learn by degrees how much you can take. And 24 inches was the most that I could take. And if I'm standing up straight on stage, the hilt would rest right above my teeth, and the tip of the blade would come to rest just above the pit of my stomach. And people say, like, uh, you have a pit of your stomach, but until I was a sword swallower, I didn't realize that's a place that actually exists. <laughs> you know, and there really is a bottom to it. So we were rehearsing and practicing, and I had swallowed my first sword, the small one, swallowed the sigh, I had swallowed the two together. And in retrospect, I think that's where everything went wrong. Now, we had a few minutes left, the bar was filling up, all my friends had come out to see me, you know, even the, the woman who had been the first sword swallower I ever saw, she was there too. And I, I started to realize that two things had gone wrong. The first thing was taken on its own fairly innocuous, is the fact that suddenly I couldn't swallow swords anymore. I had performed my act, and I was about to start it again, and I realized that my throat had just closed up. And I, I thought it was nerves, but something else had happened as well, which is the fact that suddenly my voice was growing higher. It wasn't anything like the speaking voice I have right now. It was, it was getting high-pitched. In the back of my head, I start to hear this voice, and it's the voice of all the people that I had ever studied with who are also sword swallowers, and all of them are saying the same thing, which is that sooner or later, everybody gets hurt. So I decide for myself that I'm standing on the stage, and I have like 15 minutes before, before performance, and I have to verify, basically, did I hurt myself or not? And there's really only one way I could think of to do this. So I excused myself, I went to the restroom, and I decided, well, here's what I'll do. I leaned in front of the sink, I coughed, I spat, bright red, bright red blood everywhere, spattered across the sink. And at that point, I realized I had more than just a problem, but I realized I just cut my own throat open in front of all of my friends. So I grabbed my things, I grabbed my girlfriend, I grabbed the show producer, and I tried to explain to him that, for me at least, the show would not go on. And I tried to decide what I should do next. So I should, I should tell you a little bit about what my girlfriend and I were looked like at the time, because she was a burlesque performer, so she was dressed in a corset. I looked like a carny, so I had a tuxedo coat on, and I had a velvet vest and a tie and all this makeup. And as I'm slinking out of the bar, carrying my swords, and just realizing that somehow I've ruined my best chance at like performing at this bar that I love, all I wanted to do was go home, change into some sweatpants, have a cup of hot tea, and, and go to bed. And I figured, you know, I'll, I'll do this, and then if I get up in the morning and things are still strange, then I'll, I'll go find a doctor. Well, it was on the way home that the pain began. And that's when I made the best decision of my life, which is that instead of going home to go to sleep, I went to a hospital. <laughs> Fortunately, there was one not far away. But once I got to the hospital, I realized I had a new challenge, which is explaining to somebody what I'd done to myself. <laughs> 
But fortunately, we had props. So, <laughs> so my girlfriend and I go into the, the hospital, the emergency room, basically, and she's carrying this, this bundle of swords wrapped up in T-shirts for my act, and I'm there, and I've got this squeaky Mickey Mouse voice, and I'm trying to explain to the nurse on duty that I've cut my throat open. But I, but it was deliberate, but not, but not like that. It was for entertainment. I did it for my friends, and she gave me this look, and it, she didn't laugh at me exactly, but, but you know, there was some skepticism, I think. But the good news is she recognized right away that, you know, something was really seriously wrong. So I was whisked into the emergency room, and basically, I'm I'm surrounded. Doctors come out, orderlies come out, other medical staff, and word has gone out really quickly that this guy with this exotic injury has shown up. And right away, after I, assume, I meet a doctor, he explains to me that the injury that I have is vanishingly rare. Now, I lived in Washington, D.C., so people get shot in the neck, they get stabbed in the neck. These things aren't too unusual, but to have somebody manage that from the inside out is almost unheard of, and, and to do it to yourself. Well, it turned out, actually, there are only something like 50 or 60 cases in the last century of people attempting this. Sometimes it's from sword swallowers, but also uh, sometimes medical procedures can go awry. But what, what it meant was the doctor really didn't know what to do with me. He had no experience. But he made two decisions that were important. The first decision was to give me as much pain medication as they had. <laughs> because by this point, I was convulsing in pain. And they'd hooked up an IV to me, so I was having cold fluids pumped into me. And it was in incredible discomfort. The second decision was I needed to be medevaced as quickly as possible to the nearest, you know, nearest quickly as possible to the nearest hospital. What that meant was I was going to get a helicopter ride for five miles. And so at this point, though, I'm feeling no pain. I'm euphoric. My poor girlfriend is in tears. And all I can think of is the fact that I'm going to get a helicopter ride, <laughs> which I'd never had before. And, and it turned out, actually, it was fantastic being able to see the city lights recede behind me in this tiny little helicopter with an EMT tending to me. And I was wrapped up in blankets on this cot. And it was, it was an amazing experience. I sobered up a little bit when we finally landed on the roof of Washington Hospital Center when my surgeon came out to meet me. Now, the surgeon I had was incredibly skilled, but for as much skill as he had, he completely lacked in bedside manner. The first thing he said to me was, hi, I'm Dr. Eager, it's nice to meet you. I need to tell you straightforwardly that you have about a 60 to 70% chance of surviving the night. What you've managed to do is you've cut open the back of your throat and there are fluids, blood, saliva, some other things leaking into the space around your chest. What it's doing is pooling around your throat, and it's forming a tight cuff around your vocal cords, which is why you can't talk right now. You only have this shrill whisper. So what I'm going to do is prep you for surgery. We're going to cut you open so we can drain the site. But before I do that, you should do two things. First, if you haven't done it already, you should make a will. And then secondly, you should call your family. Well, I didn't even think about the will because I was thinking too much about my family because at that point I realized... I hadn't actually told my parents I was a sword swallower. <laughs> now, in fairness, they, they knew I had some sort of variety act, and I'd led them to think it was something along the lines of like card tricks or, or juggling, maybe. Um, but the good news is I was, I was off the hook, because I couldn't talk, but I had my girlfriend with me, who, unfortunately, the responsibility fell to her at 4 o'clock in the morning now to call Florida to tell my parents that, well, their son was basically a carny, a fool, mortally injured, 
and about to go into major surgery. Once that happened, the hospital chaplain came out to see me. Um, I guess to give me last rites. I, I don't know why else they send them out. And, um, and she was an older woman. She was very comforting. And you know, without missing a beat, she came over and smiled down at me on my cot. And she said, look, tell me, my son, what brings you here today? And I wasn't able to speak, so my girlfriend, as quickly as possible, tried to explain that I was a stage performer, I had a sword, I stabbed myself in the throat with it, and, and now that I was going to go into surgery. The chaplain took, a, chaplain took a moment to process this, and then she takes my hand, she takes my girlfriend's hand, and she lifts her head skyward, and she starts to pray. And she says, Dear Lord, I pray for mercy for this young man, and I hope that you bring him through Whatever this thing is he's done to himself, <laughs> amen. With that, she gives me a final like, reassuring squeeze and, and disappears. Well, I woke up the next morning, and about the only thing that improved was the fact that I could suddenly speak again. My doctor came out to greet me, and he explained to me that in situations like this, there are really only two options that they have. Both of them involve slicing open the outside of your throat, installing a bunch of drainage tubes so they can suction out anything around the wound to keep the chances of infection down. And then either they can stitch up the injury or they can leave it alone. Personally, I would have liked if he had stitched it up because that meant I would have been out in just a few days and I'd go along my merry way. But he felt that if I had done that, well, I could go back out into the world and what if I swallowed another sword? <laughs> or, or what if just the stitches broke and then suddenly my throat was bleeding again? I might not even know it. I'd be in a worse position. So instead, he decided, basically, he would just try to keep me doped up, keep me in a hospital, and just watch me and see if I lived. Um, while I was still processing that, my parents arrived. They had flown up from Florida as quickly as they can, and their reactions were mixed. <laughs> my father took it a lot better than I thought. As I recall, he, he took a look at me, and he, once it was explained to him what had happened, he, he thought it was stupid but cool. <laughs> Uh, my mother, on the other hand, was, was not so sanguine about it. And she basically asked me, she's like, swear on anything you find holy that after you get out of this place, you'll take up something like photography, <laughs> gardening, juggling, anything. Just make sure it's safe. Um, and then after that, I basically I had a lot of free time to look forward to in the hospital. The first week, they kept me in a burn ward because they were concerned about MRSA or other hospital-borne infections. And... It was good in the respect that it deflated a sense of like self-pity that I was developing as I had all this time to reflect on this monumental failure that I'd achieved. Um, but I was surrounded by people who were injured far worse than I was, but through no fault of their own. And then after that, I realized that I was going to be here for weeks, and all I could think about really was the fact that in every book I'd ever read about being in the hospital or the movies I'd seen, when somebody has like a, a near-death experience and they, they come through it by the skin of their teeth, they have an epiphany. They have this moment where they think like, oh, I should be closer to my family, or I had this like long-lost dream that I set aside and now it's time for me to chase it. And I was just lying there in my cot thinking that I didn't have any of those things. And I wasn't sure if I was a failure because of it. And then I thought, well, maybe I'm not having these epiphanies because you know, I've been so bored. I've been trying to fill it up with things like stage acts and swallowing swords and I could have been, you know, doing something more worthwhile. Eventually, they did let me go. About four weeks later, I left the hospital. I was 35 pounds lighter. It was another two, week, two weeks, two months, until I could eat solid food again. But once I got out, things were actually a little bit more normal than they had been before I went in. For one thing, I wasn't swallowing swords anymore. 
um, miraculously too, I also had a, I had my job waiting for me. Somehow over that time, they kept it. In fact, my coworkers were nicer to me than I they'd been before I went in. <laughs> and I found out later that the reason for this was because they didn't buy my cover story that I'd had this freak accident, slipped in my kitchen, and fallen on the dishwasher, and like a sword went into my neck. <laughs> I thought it was plausible. Instead, they thought that I'd attempt this like baroque suicide. And so they were just like, okay, we're going to be as nice as we can to Justin. And we're not going to stress him out at all because we don't want this to happen again. Um, but then, otherwise, I, but I had a realization about sword swallowing, which is that it's an act of escalation. It's one of those things where if I were to swallow a sword in front of you, the audience would accept it. And once they've seen you swallow one sword, they expect to see you swallow two swords or a curved sword, or a glass sword. But I realized that my failure had been so spectacular, I was going out on top, that <laughs> there was nothing successful I could do on a stage again that would ever top the fact that I'd stab myself in front of all of my friends and live to tell about it. So I had, a, I had a little bit of a sense of inner peace about that, even though I missed the act a lot. And, and in the long run, actually, it's been good because these days my life is a lot more normal, and. Like one of the things I like to do is I play Dungeons and Dragons with my friends. And so we get together and, you know, we slay imaginary monsters that are basically like the creatures in that sideshow bar. And one thing I'm a little bit smug about when we play is the fact that I can sit at that table and have everybody gathered around talking about different swords, clashing and things like that. And I realize I'm probably the only living Dungeons and Dragon player who actually knows what a longsword injury feels like. <laughs> has lived to tell the tale. Thank you. Thank you. That was Justin Cameron. Justin is a product manager and mobile app designer at webintensive.com, where he works on search engines and secure email products. Before that, he was an itinerant technical writer, hacker, and very briefly, a sideshow performer. He lives in Brooklyn. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Evelith. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Under St. Mark's for hosting the show, to Ara Ziv and Cindy Freeman for organizing the Gotham Storytelling Festival, and to my hobby, juggling things without any pointy bits whatsoever. Thanks for listening. <laughs>